man forgets, our God remembers. After just a one-shot year, Nehemiah returned to find otherwise, that they had not kept their vows. In fact, Nehemiah will come back after a year to ask them, why is the house of God neglected? Can you imagine one year ago, you make a pledge that I will remember God's house. One year later, I forgot about it already. Sometimes we Christians are like that, isn't that? When we baptize, we say that we will be faithful to God. How, how many of us will still be around after a year later? Perhaps some have fallen away. What we see here is that the walls of Jerusalem took 52 days to be built and it stood for centuries. On the other hand, Nehemiah spent 12 years to build the people. It didn't last long. One year later, they had forgotten God. They had neglected the house of God. Rebuilding a people is harder than rebuilding a wall. In fact, we see that Nehemiah's time, the people have forgotten about the vows that they made with God. Nehemiah chapter 10 verse 29, when they say that they will not neglect the house of God, they have sworn an oath to God. In fact, they enter into a curse, into an oath. And what did they say? That they will walk in God's law. They would observe and do all the commandments of the Lord their God and His judgments and His statutes. Particularly, they made three very severe vows to God that they would not commit any of these sins. Well, the first, they say, we will not give our daughters unto the people of the land nor take their daughters for our sons. So what they were saying is that they will not enter into mixed marriages, into marriages with people of other nations. Bear this in mind because we'll come back to this again to see that they have forgotten this vow. The second vow that they made, we will not buy on the Sabbath or on the holy day. So what they saw is that they will not profane the Sabbath or the holy day or any other holy day by making merchandise, by trading, by buying goods from people on those days. Guess what? They also forgot the second vow. To complete the hat trick, they forgot the third vow as well. They said, we will bring the first fruits of our dough, our offerings, the fruit of all manners of trees, wine, oil, unto the priests, to the chambers of the house of our God, the tithes of our ground unto the Levites, that the same Levites might have tithes in all the cities of our tillage. So what did they say? They swore that they will support the work of God in general, and in particular, they will support the work of the Levites with their money, with their offerings. Well, guess what? All three vows they forgotten. They broke every one of their promises to God within a short period of time. Man forgets, God remembers. So in this morning's lesson, I'd like for us to consider these three vows that the people forgot and the good of Nehemiah that God remembers. Contrasted to forgetful man, God never forgets. And Nehemiah's this we see has been memorialized for us in scriptures. And ultimately on the day of judgment, he will also remember the good that we do for him. So let's reflect, how do we want God to remember us? When we ask God to remember us, what will he remember us for? So without further ado, let's look at the three things that Nehemiah asked God to remember him by. Well, we spoke about the three things that the Jews forgotten. The first vow they forgotten is the vow of separation. You see, God had commanded that no Ammonites, no Moabites could come into the assembly of God. In Deuteronomy 23 verse 3, this commandment is given that there is no Ammonite or Moabite that come into the congregation of God. Even to the 10th generation, they could not enter into the congregation of the Lord forever. So these are people from foreign lands. And Nehemiah chapter 13, verse 1 to 3, gives us the reason why they could not go there. Because when Israel was doing, doing the wilderness wanderings, they did not support them. So because of that, and also because they hired Balaam, 
Okay, remember Moab, they tempted Israel by hiring uh, Balaam to curse them and then subsequently uh, asked Balaam to lead them into sin. Because of all these things, they could not enter into God's assembly. But we see that subsequently, Israel forgot about it. Israel was also not to make any mixed marriages with the foreign nations. Deuteronomy 7 verse 2 to verse 3 makes it very clear. You shall not make any covenant with them. You shall not make marriages with them. Their daughter you shall not give to your son and this daughter shall not take unto your son. So very importantly, they were not to engage in mixed marriages because God knew that engaging into mixed marriages, the people will be drawn away from God into idolatry. It would lead them to forsake God. So the first vow that they made was the vow of separation. But we see that the people had forgotten the vow. In fact, we see that there was a mixed multitude in Israel. After they learned that God says no Moabite and no Ammonite could come into their midst, they separated from Israel all the mixed multitudes. The Lord of God apparently had been forgotten. To them, when they were reading it, when Nehemiah was reading it to them, it was like a new law. Oh, I didn't know about it. Now I have to separate ourselves from the foreign people. Not only that, they were also engaged in mixed marriages. Their close association with the people of Ammon and Moab, guess what? It brought them into marriages with them. So they were married with people of Ammon, of Ammon, of Moab, and even of Ashdod. Remember, the people of Ashdod, the one of the chief cities of Philistines. The Philistines, if you remember, they are bitter enemies of Israel. Uh. Throughout the time of Judges, even to the time of David, Solomon, they were bitter enemies, right? Even the days of King Saul. Remember Goliath? He was a Philistine. So these were sworn enemies of Israel. But because of the close association with them, they had gone into mixed marriages. And that was an issue because they disobeyed God. And they were also involved in mixed alliances as well. Even the leaders were in cahoots with God's enemy. You see, even Eliashib was the high priest. The high priest was the person who was supposed to lead people to faithfulness, who was supposed to teach them the law of God. But yet the Bible tells us that he was allied with Tobiah. The Jews had three enemies. Huh? They objected to the building of the walls of Jerusalem. Gisham, Tobiah, and Sambalat. And Tobiah was one of them. And Tobiah was actually an Ammonite. Huh? So he was guilty of a lot of things. First, he was an Ammonite. They were not to mix with him. Secondly, he was an enemy of God. Huh? But yet, the high priests were buddy-buddy with him. Huh? They were good friends. Huh? They were having an alliance. Later, we shall see that this good friendship uh, caused him to even sin against God in order to accommodate this alliance. So the high priest was mixed into this alliance and his grandson, unsurprisingly, married the daughter of Sambalat. Okay? Sambalat was another enemy of Israel. Okay? So Nehemiah 13 verse 28 says, one of the sons of Joida, the son of Eliashib, the high priest. So the grandson was son-in-law to Sambalat, the Horonite. So the grandson of the high priest enter into mixed marriage with their enemy, the daughter of the enemy, Sambalat, who opposed the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem. And here it says Sambalat, the Horonite. Nah. So the Horon is actually a city in Moab. So this was a Moabite. So not only were they allies, they are now, he was now a father-in-law to a, to a daughter-in-law who was from the, the, the city of Moab. So that was a very grave uh, infraction of God's law. So the people had totally forgot about their vow of separation. And so Nehemiah had to do something. Nehemiah corrected the situation. First, he addressed the mixed multitude. The people had to come away from this mixed multitude. They had to separate themselves to keep themselves holy. 
The lineage had to be kept pure because the Messiah will come down from the lineage of the Jews. And then subsequently, we see that the mixed marriages were also being uh, dealt with. In fact, in Nehemiah chapter 13, verse 25, notice the extent with which Nehemiah exercised discipline. Here he says that Nehemiah contended with them, cursed them, and smote certain of them, and plucked off their hair, and made them swear by God, saying, You shall not give your daughters unto your, their sons, nor take their daughters unto your sons, or for yourselves. Okay. We read the, the things that Nehemiah do, did uh, sound very drastic. Uh. Uh, reminds you of the sometimes people storm them, right? Wow, public brawl, fighting, fighting, pull hair out here and there. Uh. Seems like that situation. Uh. Okay, but it's not so disorderly. This was actually not a public brawl uh, because Nehemiah used the law to deal with them. According to the commentary by Adam Clark, uh, he says that what Nehemiah did when he contended with them is not to just public scolding and uh, shouting, uh, but he brought them to the law. He brought them to the courts to discipline them. And then when he cursed them, when we think about cursing, we think about vulgarities, all these, uh, or bad words. Not so. Uh. Nehemiah actually used the law to place judgment on them. So the word cursing means to use judgment. So he judged them according to God's law and he judged them with the sentence of the law upon them. Okay? And then he smote certain of them. After realizing that they have sinned, they have committed things that were guilty of punishment, they were whipped, they were scourged. So that is what is meant by that they were being smote. And lastly, they are them shaven uh, as a sign of their shame, to bring shame upon them because of their sins against God. And he caused them to bind themselves of an oath, to renew their oath that they will not take off to themselves foreign wives or foreign husbands to sin against God. So Nehemiah was someone whose heart was with God. He made sure that the people corrected themselves. And also remember, we spoke about how that, uh, uh, sorry, let me go, go back to that. So with regards to that of mixed marriages, you'll notice in Nehemiah chapter 13, verse 26 to verse 27, he reminded them about how even Solomon was led to sin by foreign women. Let's look at Nehemiah chapter 13, verse 26 to 27. And here it says, Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin by these things? Talking about sin of mixed marriages. Yet among many nations was there no king like him who was beloved of his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, even him did outlandish woman cause to sin. So notice the implication is that even Solomon, with all his power, his influence, his wisdom, he couldn't resist the temptation of women. Uh. Uh, Chinese have a saying, uh, okay. oftentimes the foreign, foreign nations, they will use the beauty trap on the people, right? Solomon, the wisest man, fell prey to a woman. Samson, the strongest man, also fell prey to a woman. Okay. So we see that the lure of the foreign marriages was very strong. It's the point that Nehemiah is trying to make is that if even uh, Solomon could not resist the temptation, how could the people hope to be in a mixed marriage and hope to remain pure? And so verse 27, it says, Shall we then hearken unto you to do all this great evil, to transgress our God in marrying strange wives? So he says that how could you commit this sin when God has been so kind to you? He brought you out of captivity, but yet you, despite all the reminders, you go back to the same sin. You know, sometimes we also have the thinking. We think that if we engage in the mixed marriages, well, I think I will still remain faithful. But look at the situation. The examples in the church. How many still remain faithful? And of those that remain faithful, do they become even more zealous for God after the marriage? Or do they become less active? I think the answer is very obvious. If we uh, mix into mixed marriages, we are unequally yoked with unbelievers. Naturally, we will be affected to some extent. 
So the mixed marriages issue had to be dealt with. And lastly, talking about the mixed alliances. Remember how the high priest was in cahoots with the enemy and the grandson of the high priest had married an enemy of uh, a daughter of the enemy. And these were people that they were not in the first place to come into contact with. And so what Nehemiah did was that he chased the grandson of Elisha away from him. So this means that he prevented him from serving as priest. This was a person who had dishonored the priesthood by marrying and foreign women and disobeying God. So he had to remove from the priesthood. And he also appointed the Levites and the priests to the temple service. So this was a man who had zeal for God and he called on God to remember him. Well, sometimes you might ask, what is so serious with marrying those of other alliances, of those of other nations or even other faith? The problem with the lack of separation with the Jews was that the Bible tells us that the children of the Jews, they speak half in the language of Ashdod and could not speak in the Jews' language, but according to the language of each people. So they've forgotten their own roots. They've forgotten the Jewish language. They could not speak Hebrew. What do they speak? They speak Ashdod, the language of Moab, the language of Ammon. They forget the language of the Jews. I think this is something that we can identify with as we grow up, isn't it? My parents can speak dialect, nah. My mom can speak Shanghainese. My dad can speak Hokkien. Uh, my dad just speak more than that. I think he can speak Hokkien, Cantonese, Teochew. Uh. But come to my generation, forgotten all of it. Uh, because in our, uh, during the time in the 1970s, uh, our prime minister encouraged people to learn Chinese. Okay, so dialects, they phase out. So the less you use it, you forget it. So these people have married foreign wives. They were so used to the language that they have forgotten the language of the Jews. Well, the problem is that when we are married with people of different faith, a lack of separation can also cause our, our children to forget the language of God. We speak the language of the world instead. Huh? And why is the language of the world? Well, the language of the world is that of selfishness. Why is it for me if I want me to do certain things? The language of pride. Huh? Me first, others second. Okay, I must always be exalted. And the language of covetousness and worldliness. The people of the world look for the things of the world. They want to be wealthy, to be famous, to be rich. But... When we talk about God's people, we have to keep ourselves holy. Nothing wrong with being rich and famous, but not at the expense of our faith. And this reminds of me of an anecdote that was related to me uh, about a brother in Christ. At a point in time, his daughter was dating someone of another race, okay? but both were Christians. And so after dating for some time, the, the man actually asked, uh, the, 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 the man that the daughter was dating, actually asked the prospective father-in-law for the hand in marriage. But he was also concerned uh, so he asked the prospective father-in-law, does it matter to you that my do your daughter is marrying someone of another race? And I remember that the brother's reply was that race doesn't matter so long as they are of the same faith. And thankfully today, these two couples, they are an example of great faith, great zeal, and very active in God's kingdom. So you see that the priorities were right. How about us when it comes to our children getting married? What are we most concerned with? Uh? Some people say, oh, status. Must be same status. Uh, must match status must maybe match the same race, the same language. Huh? Uh, do I want my children to marry someone from another race? But which is more important? Status, race, or religion? I think what we should prioritize is that of the same faith. Doesn't matter if you are marrying your, daughter, your children, marrying someone who is of lower status. Doesn't matter if they are not rich. They can be hardworking, responsible Christians who will strive hard. But is it more important that they are of the same faith so that they can help your children to get to heaven so that they will not lose their souls? After all, what does it matter if you gain the whole world and lose your own soul? 
So Nehemiah asked God to remember him. In Nehemiah chapter 13, verse 31, Nehemiah says, ask God to remember him for good, for the good that he had done for him. Well, how will God remember us? Will God remember us for good? Will he remember us as being separate from the world? In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 17 and verse 18, the Bible says that we are to come out from among them, be separate, said the Lord. Touch not the unseen, unclean thing, and I will receive you. I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters, said the Lord Almighty. So God wants us to be separate from the world. We are in the world, but we are not of the world. As 2 Corinthians 6 verse 14, the verses earlier says, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. In fact, Paul asked five questions, rhetorical questions. What fellowship had righteousness with unrighteousness? Answer is, of course, no. What communion had light with darkness? Again, light and darkness have no communion. What concord have Christ with Belial? The devil and Christ has nothing in common. What part had he that believeth with an infidel? And what agreement had the temple of God with idols? Oftentimes, we like to use this passage to talk about marriage. But it's more than that. It's a general principle in life. It can be applied to marriage because it's the closest of all relationships. But it also applies to our friendships as well, in our working relationship as well. Do we, are we separate from the world? Or are we like the world, working on Sundays, trying to gain a promotion at the expense of our family, at the expense of our religion? How about our friends? Are we closer to people of the world, speaking to their language? Are we closer to God's people and draw close to them in fellowship? How does our God remember us? Do we remember us as being separate from the world? The second vow that Israel violated was the vow of contribution. They had pledged to support God's house, they had pledged to support the priesthood, but they went against their vow. In fact, God had commanded the Israelites to give tithes in support of the Levites in their ministry to God. The Levites devoted themselves to serving God and they were to support them. So Numbers 18 verse 21, Moses says, I've given the children of Levi, all, or rather God says, I've given the children of Levi all the tenth in Israel for an inheritance, for the service which they serve, even for the service of the tabernacle of their congregation. So these were people who were devoted God's servants, and God says, take care of them. The tithes are to be given to them in support of them. Well, but guess what? Israel had neglected the tithes and the offerings. In fact, notice that the grievous sin that they had committed. Uh, remember we talked about Elisha, who was uh, allied with Tobiah. And God's house was used for worship of God and to keep the things that are holy to God, the vessels that were sanctified and the offerings that were to be given to him to be able to offer to him a burnt offering every day, every morning and night. But in order to accommodate his ally, his good friend, his buddy, Tobiah, what did Eliashib the priest did? You see that Eliashib the priest actually prepared for Tobiah a great chamber. And this chamber was used before to put the meat offerings, the frankincense, the vessels, the tithes, the corn, the new wine, and the oil, and the offering of the priests. The chamber was used to house God's offerings. But how dare he remove the offerings to clear out the space, the make space for Tobiah. And Tobiah was the enemy of the Jew. I remember he was an Ammonite. Huh? So he could not even set foot into the temple. But here was this man who had the audacity to house the enemy, to house someone who had uh, who was not of their people, to commit such a great sin against God. So the priest was foremost in this sin. And you may wonder then, how, how to empty the chamber? Uh? The chamber was so full, where do you put them? Well, apparently the chamber had become empty because of the neglect of the support. The Levites were neglected. 
you see that the people had not the Levites the the, rather, the Levites had not received their portions. The people were not giving the tithes and offerings as they should. And so the Levites actually had to go back to their employment. They went back to their field to work because there was no support. Well, you could empathize with them. After all, their families to feed, right? Their children to take care of. They still had to provide for them. So they, the lack of support caused them to go back to working in the fields. That was what they neglected. And the leaders themselves had neglected God's house. In fact, Nehemiah contacted with them to ask, why is the house of God forsaken? The offerings have been neglected. The priests have been neglected. The temple upkeep itself had been neglected as well. Just a year earlier, they say, we will not neglect the house of our Lord. But yet, they had neglected it. In fact, all these sins were committed with the sanction of the leaders. After all, Eliashia was the high priest. He was in charge of the temple. Chinese says, If you cannot set the example, how can you tell people to bring offerings when you are the ones who have disrespected God's offerings? And so the priest was foremost in the scene. The leaders turned a blind eye to it. And that's how God's temple was being neglected. It was being forsaken. And so Nehemiah came to the rescue by correcting the situation. And his priorities was put in the right order because he knew that in order to help the person, help the people to become right again, they had to first make themselves right with God. The forsaking of God's house had to be dealt with first. And so what Nehemiah did was that he went through a very drastic measure. He chased out Tobiah, take away all his stuff and throw them out. Just like how Jesus cleansed the temple. The temple had to be cleansed. All the things were removed, being booted out. And then they cleansed the temple to purify the temple and brought back all the vessels and the offerings back into the house of God. That was what Nehemiah did. The first priority is to make sure that God's house is well taken care of. With regards to the leaders, we see that he chided them and then he brought back, he made Israel to bring back the tithes of the corn, the new wine, and the oil unto the treasuries. The neglect of the tithes and offerings had to be dealt with. The people had to remember again that it was their duty to contribute to God's service. And lastly, to address the neglect of the Levites, he made sure that this would not happen again. He appointed treasurers over the treasuries. And these treasurers were people who were faithful, and their duty was to distribute to the brethren. So people were put in charge of the temple uh, offerings, the tithes, and they were to distribute to the brethren so that these people would not be neglected. Again, you might ask the question, why is it so significant, why is it so serious about neglecting of the tithes offerings, the Levites, and the God's house? Okay. Why not let other people take care of them? Well, it's not a big deal. But the problem was that because of the neglect, you see that even the people who are supposed to take care of God's house could not sustain themselves. The Levites, the singers that did the work, all of them went back to their fields of employment. In the same case today, has our lack of contribution led to God's workers to go to other fields of employment? I'm thankful to God that in Singapore, the churches are quite generous. The preachers are well supported. But in other congregations, it may not be so. Other preachers, missionaries, sometimes they have to go back to secular employment or even work part-time because they are not being well taken care of. I have classmates that were with me in Forces College. They wanted to devote themselves to preaching. But when they go back to their own congregations, well, the congregation do not support them well. There is no support for them. And so in the end, they have to go back to secular employment. And this, but thankfully, they are still faithful Christians serving and preaching and teaching in whatever capacity that they can. But Isaiah is said that when there are people who are willing to devote themselves, that they could not do so because of the lack of support. So at this side, as we grow in the size in our membership, 
Let's look at how we can be supportive in mission work as well. Next year, we are going to have a mission trip to the Philippines. We want to be involved in mission work. And in time to come, perhaps as we grow, we can also raise funds to help support missionaries in other areas of the world. After all, God's Great Commission is not just given to Singapore, to all the whole world as well. We need to be supportive of all these workers of God. And so Nehemiah asked God to remember him. Remember him concerning this thing that he had done to make sure that God's temple was well taken care of. And Nehemiah 13 verse 14, he says, Wipe not out the good deeds which I have done for the house of my God. And God remembers the good that Nehemiah did for his house. God remembers every single one of them. How about us? How does God remember us? Will God remember us as being contributors to his work? Are we contributing actively to his work? Not just money, but our time and our service. Do we devote ourselves in God's kingdom? In 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6 to verse 7, here Paul says that the point is this, the one who sows sparingly shall reap sparingly. The one who sows bountifully will reap bountifully. Every one of you must give as you have made up your mind, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Are we giving cheerfully and generously? The day of judgment will be God remember us as the five talent men who have much and we give much. Or will we remember us as the miser, the one talent man who did not give? Or even worse, will we become the five talent men who did not give a single talent in the use of God's kingdom? Are we contributing to the work of God? Thirdly, Israel made the third vow of devotion. Remember, they say that we will not trade, we will not buy and sell on the Sabbath day or on any of the holy days. In fact, that was a commandment that God gave to the Israelites to keep the Sabbath in devotion to God and to do no work on the Sabbath under the penalty of death. That's how serious it is. Huh? A man was caught gathering sticks on Sabbath. He was stoned to death because God made the command explicitly clear. In Exodus 31 verse 15, six days work can be done, but in the seventh is a Sabbath of rest, holy to the Lord. Whosoever doeth any work in the Sabbath day, he shall surely be put to death. So the Sabbath was holy, it was devoted to God. For us today, we don't keep the Sabbath, but there's still a day that we need to keep uh, the Lord's day. Revelation chapter 1 verse 10 refers to it as the Lord's day. The Lord's day means what? The day belongs to God. It's not my day, uh, it's not my wife's day, it's not any of our day. It's not that I my day uh, and I give to God two hours of my time to worship Him, to attend Bible classes. But remember, it's God's day. So God is the one who is generous to us to give us the time that we can use to worship Him. The Jews had to use the whole day to devote themselves to God. They could not do any work. Thankfully for us today, God has been very kind to us. He allows us to do whatever we want, but we have to remember to worship Him. So are we misusing the Lord's day? Remember, it's the Lord's day and not our day. And that should be the perspective that we have. If you are called to serve Him on the Lord's day, shouldn't we count it a glory, a blessing to be able to do so? So the Jews were guilty of breaking the Lord's day, or that day, the Sabbath. What were they doing? Let's look at what were the people doing. They were treading wine presses on the Sabbath. They were bringing in the sheaves, lading the asses, wine, grapes, and figs, and all manner of burdens, which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. So what were they doing? They were producing their goods. They were transporting their goods, and they were selling their goods. So that was what they were doing. One year after they made the pledge, they engaged in merchandising on the Sabbath when they were supposed to not do any work. Well, if the people are doing that, when there's a demand, you can actually guess that there will be a supply. And so the foreign traders, the foreigners were happy to do business uh, 
If God's people doesn't care, they want to do it, they want to buy and sell, I will gladly join in. That's what the foreigners thought because they have no concept of God. They have no fear of God. And so the people of Tyre, they actually brought fish, all manner of wear, and so on the Sabbath unto the children of Israel, the children of Judah and Jerusalem. The people wanted something natural when the, naturally when there's a demand, there will be a supply. And once again, we see that the leaders themselves were complicit in this sin. Earlier, Nehemiah condemned them for forsaking God's house, but now they were turning a blind eye to the sin of breaking the Sabbath. After all, they were more interested in the money, wasn't it? When the, the, the temple was being put aside, Tobiah comes in. Well, perhaps he could bring business for them. Now there are people who are buying and selling. Taxes will go up. I can tax people more. They are more interested in making the money. And so, we see Nehemiah contended with the nobles of Judah, the leaders. He said to them, what evil thing is it that you do? And you profane the Sabbath day. They were profaning, defiling the Sabbath day because he was to be devoted to God. And once again, Nehemiah came to the occasion, right to the occasion. He corrected them. And this time round, again, we see that he set the priorities right. The leaders were the ones who were guilty. They had to be corrected before the people will change. When the people change, then you can expect the foreigners to change. And so that was the order that he dealt with the situation. First, dealing with the leaders. And so we see that he chastened them. He contended with them. And remember, he reminded them about how their sin had brought punishment on them. And now they were going back to sin. In verse 18, he says, Did not your father pass, and did not our God bring all this evil upon us and upon this city? Yet you bring more wrath upon Israel by profaning the Sabbath. Remember the reason why were the Jews brought into captivity for 70 years? Why the magic number 70? Ah? It was not a magic number ah, because it was for every year that they missed the Sabbath year. Remember, every seventh year, they were to keep the land untouched, not to do any harvesting, not to do any planting. But they had neglected the Sabbath year for 490 years. So for every year that they missed that, they went into captivity for that year. 70 years that they went in. Now God brought them out again. They are again breaking the Sabbath. So Nehemiah is reminding them, you went to captivity for that. Do you want to go into captivity again for forsaking God's Sabbath? So God, also Nehemiah, chastened them. And to the people, he also enforced very strict measures. So we see that what did he do? He commanded that the gates are shut. They will not be opened until after the Sabbath. And he stationed guards at the gates. So he prevented them from making merchandising. The gates were shut. They could not go in. They could not go out. Nobody could come in or out. And then guards were there to make sure that people do not try to play the system, uh, climb over or do whatever nonsense. So he made sure that it was well guarded. And in fact, this law uh, stood in place for a long time. Uh. Remember, even until the time of Jesus, that law was still in place. Because remember what Jesus said when he talked about the destruction of Jerusalem? In, uh, sorry, in Matthew chapter 24, verse 20, he asked the Jews to pray that your flight not be in winter, not on the Sabbath day. Why? Winter traveling will be very difficult. But why not on Sabbath day? Because Sabbath day, the gates will be closed. If the destruction of Jerusalem came, the invading armies came, they could never escape. So this law was kept uh, from the time of Nehemiah up to the time of Jesus. 400 years. Nehemiah's influence was that great. Uh. 400 years, the people obeyed this law. And the people being dealt with, of course, there were still the pesky foreigners. Uh. They will try to make money at all costs. Uh. Okay. So what did Nehemiah do? We see that in verse 21, he told them that they could not come into the city. But the people were very persistent. Maybe I try my luck. Uh. Uh, maybe one time, two times. Let's try. Eventually, they will wear out. Maybe they were tired. Uh, I can then make my way back in. 
So they actually were outside of Jerusalem once or twice. But Nehemiah caught them. He says, why are you lodging outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. From that time forth, they no more came on the Sabbath. So lay hands talking about exerting the law, authority of the law of them. They'll be punished according to the law if they continue to come on the Sabbath day. So Nehemiah dealt quickly with the situation and addressed it promptly. The leaders, the people, and the foreigners, all of them were being dealt with. Well, why was this so serious again? The Sabbath, after all, is just one day. Uh, perhaps people can just choose to do whatever they want. But the problem with the lack of devotion was that it brought wrath upon Israel. Sin always brings consequences. In this case, it brought them into captivity. How about us? Perhaps our lack of devotion will also bring God's wrath upon us. Have you find that sometimes Christians say that I need to work on Sundays because I need to make men's feet. I need to get a promotion. I need to fight the cost of living. But yeah, these Christians sometimes will find that, hey, how come I'm working so hard but I'm not getting prosperous? Huh? How come I'm not getting the promotion? How come I'm not being recognized? Perhaps God's wrath had come upon them. In the time of their Haggai, you see, the people have worked very hard. They have forsaken the God's, God's uh, temple. They were forsaking God's house. They were trying to build up their own house. But God says, you work to put your money to a bag of holes. Huh? Imagine you have a lot of money put inside, but there's a hole at the back. Huh? All of them will just drop out. Huh? So isn't that what we are doing when we neglect our devotion to God? Sunday when we work, we find our efforts are not blessed because we have forgotten God. So God has not blessed us. And so Nehemiah asked God to remember him about this. In Nehemiah chapter 13, verse 22, he says, Ask God to remember me concerning this also and spare me according to the greatness of your mercy. Nehemiah was someone who put God first and he asked God to be merciful to him. And of course, we know that our God answered his prayer. How about us today? Will God remember us being devoted to his cause, just like Nehemiah? Romans chapter 12, verse 11 to 13, Paul reminded us, he encouraged us to not be lagging in diligence or not slothful in business, fervent in spirit to serve the Lord. Remember that it's a privilege to serve God. If on the Lord's day, remember this day belongs to God, but He has given it to us to use. He just wants us to come to worship Him. That's His grace and mercy to us. Can we be fervent in serving Him? And Paul says further, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfast in prayer, distributing to the needs of saints, given to hospitality. Let us remain steadfast in our faith, knowing that God has been very kind to us. Let us be patient in our tribulation that we face. Let us show hospitality, uh, show kindness to others around us, just as God has been merciful to us. So brethren, how do we want God to remember us? We see that God remembers Nehemiah in these three areas, of him being separated from the people of the land, of his contribution to God generously, and also of his devotion to God. Will God remember the same of us? Or will he remember us as the people who have defied him? In Nehemiah chapter 13, verse 29, Nehemiah asked God to remember the people who have disobeyed him. Remember them, O oh my God, because they have defied the priesthood, the covenant of the priesthood, and of the Levites. So God remembers the good that people do, but he also remembers the sins that are committed against him. To talk about Elisha, the high priest, the enemies of the Jews, Gisham, Tobiah, and Sambalat. All these people, God also remembers them. But it's not for good. It's for evil. Do we want God to remember us for good or for evil? At the start of the lesson, I pointed out this fact. God remembers men for guests. Brethren, God remembers us, but have we forgotten about God? How should we remember God? Well, the wise man Solomon says, 
Remember your creator in the days of your youth. When you're still young, we have the opportunity, remember God. Don't wait until it's too late. Our God has never forgotten us. So we need to remember that, remember Him. Even as we come to a new year, perhaps it's the time for us to rededicate ourselves to be more zealous in our service for God. To the friends that have joined us for this morning, thank you for your attention and thank you for your presence with us. Well, in the story of Nehemiah, I think he's a very admirable character because he was zealous for God. And whatever sins he saw, he dealt with it very promptly. How about you? Will you deal with sin in a prompt manner, just as Nehemiah did? The Hebrew writer tells us, Today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts. Nehemiah see that, saw that something needed to be done, and he done it promptly. How about us? Perhaps some of you have been sitting with us for a long time. You are considering about salvation, but you have been putting it off time after time. Again, coming to the start of a new year, why not obey God this day? And when the new year starts, well, we can start with a new life and also develop healthy habits in service to God. The problem with putting off things is that our hearts become hardened. The first time, we may feel a tender heart, we may feel our conscience nagging at us. But after sometimes, our heart becomes cold. Is it the same thing with things that we do? Perhaps my wife nag at me to do something. The first time I feel bad. But I put it long enough, to me it becomes noise now. It's no longer instruction already. Perhaps to us, it's the same thing. We put off God's word. After some time, the word of God no longer touches our heart. We become so used to it that we never think about obeying God ever again. That was the problem with Felix, isn't it? Felix had the chance to hear God's word. He trembled when he heard Paul talk about righteousness, temperance, and judgment to come. Well, he put it off. Subsequently, after two years, there was no record of him obeying the gospel. He left office and he left Paul bound. That is what hardness of heart can do to us. Do we have a tender heart? If so, will we make ourselves right with God? Well, the plan of salvation is very simple. It has been made clear to us in the Bible. The difficult part has been done by God. He gave His Son to die for us. Our part is to hear the gospel, which all of you have heard already. To believe the gospel, to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And then, subsequently, to repent of our sins. To change our life, to change our mind, to make ourselves right with God. And then to confess our faith in Christ and to be baptized to wash away our sins. Thereafter, to be faithful to Him all the days of our life and we will receive a crown of life. If there's any of us here among us that's a need, that like to rededicate ourselves to God, or perhaps even to obey the gospel as we consider our salvation, why not let the request be made known? You can come forward, you can tell anybody beside you, okay, write on a piece of note and pass to us. And we will be glad to assist you in making yourself right with God. Let us stand and sing the hymn of invitation and encouragement. Thou thinkest not of me. God never forgot us. Let us always remember God. Amid the trials which I meet, Amid the thoughts which pierce my feet, One thought remains supremely sweet, Thou thinkest, Lord, of me. Thou thinkest, Lord, of me. Lord of me, what need I fear when thou art near and thinkest, Lord, of me? The cares of life come thronging fast upon my soul, their shadow cast, their gloom reminds my heart.
us, Lord, of me. Thou thinkest, Lord, of me. Thou thinkest, Lord, of me. What need I fear when thou art near and thinkest, Lord, of me? Let shadows come, let shadows go, let light be bright or dark with woe. I am content, for this I know, thou thinkest, Lord, of me. Thou thinkest, Lord, of me. Thou thinkest, Lord, of me. What need I fear when thou art near and thinkest, Lord, of me?